Prepare for your heartstrings to be plucked. Welcome, mere mortalites, to another round of the book reviews. I am your host, Kyron, of the Mere Mortals podcast, the Mere Mortals book reviews and the value for value. But this is the book reviews podcast where we dive deeper into the books that I'm reading in particular to give you the juicy information, to extract some themes you might not have thought about and to just dive into these books, really get a feel for what's going on and maybe uh, introduce you to some things, some that you'd never heard of before. And I do have one which is probably a relatively unknown considering this is an international podcast and this is The Harp in the South by Ruth Park. So I definitely like to focus on older classics and this definitely is an older classic. It's a classic Aussie book from 1948. It was published. It's about 225 pages in length and it probably probably took me about six hours of reading to get through in total. It's relatively dense, the writing that you'll find on this. The, uh, I suppose, motivation, initial impression of why I came into this book was uh, I was just doing some research once upon a time of, you know, what's, what's the classic Aussie books? And uh, this was right at the top of the list. It was pretty, pretty close to the, to the top and, and consistently across a whole bunch of lists. I'd actually never heard of it before. So I really didn't know what to expect coming in. Not a book that I was forced to read in high school, which I am very, very thankful for. So it's, it's pretty gnarly, man. When you, when you first start reading it, I'd say within the first, oh, geez, like 30 pages, there's uh, poverty, there's death, there's abuse. Um, there's a hinted kidnapping or a hinted child gone missing. You don't really know what happens. Um, it's all. It all seems pretty real. It seems pretty gritty from the from the start. Not gritty in the sense of like crime and like a fascination with it. It's more just like this. It, it just really. It it really seems real. It really seems like oh okay, this could have been an actual family that that existed, and. The way that characters speak and act really conforms to what I imagine their environment and their their life situation is very much like. So this gets us, I suppose, onto the plot and style. So it's set in 1930s Australia, in particular in the uh, Sydney uh, inner city suburb of Surrey Hills. And I believe at that time this was there was a lot of poverty going on. The 1930s, Great Depression, that sort of stuff. I think it affected here in Australia as well, or or kind of coming into it, coming out of it. My, my history on, on that period's uh, pretty loose, c- considering it was uh, almost 100 years ago. And it, there's the Darcy family in particular that we're focusing on, which is a family of five. There's Huey Darcy. There's, I can't, I think her name's Margaret, but they all just call her Mama. There is Rowie or Rowena, who was the, I'd say, the main character of this book. Uh, and she's 19 years old. Her sister, Delore, who I guesses around like 12 to 11 and then grandma and they they form this kind of irish family who are just living in this kind of boarding house they're renting from there then they kind of like sublet that out to other other people so they have a couple of neighbors around them there's a couple of other characters but it's really focusing on on these um these five in particular and what is it it's basically just like a a book about boyfriends, about family family relationships, drunken mishaps, arguments, and and death <laughs> over a, over a three year period. I would say it doesn't give exact dates nor times, but just judging from a couple of like pregnancies and other relationships and how things typically go, you'd say ah oh, yeah, it's about three years. So it's um very much a day in the lifestyle. It's split into twenty one chapters, but there is no kind of 
intro or there's no table of contents about these chapters. So they're, they're kind of unimportant. And to be honest, they just read as if they're they're just normal. There's nothing in particular that you go like, oh, this chapter is distinct from this one. The actual wording, the di- uh, the what's contained within the book, I'd say about a third of it's dialogue between characters and then two thirds of it is explaining the situations and internal feelings. So we, de- we definitely have this third person omniscient viewer that we're we're getting to see into their lives and these characters thoughts and feelings and things like this so i'm going to jump onto page 84 and 85 and cole is going to uh, read out just a a section from these pages so you get a feel for what the the book is uh, about he was almost incapable of comprehending another person's viewpoint or imagining the consequences of his deeds in another's life so when he desired roey he thought nothing of roey He loved her only because she induced in him a sense of importance and a sequence of pleasurable sensations. Most of all, he wanted to have an experience which he could recount in lingering detail to his mates. And then skipping on a paragraph. She knew he was not the tender and masterful lover her dreams had built. He did not fit into the mold created by books and films. His words were ordinary, his body was slight and ill-formed and his clothes were musty-smelling, rough to the feel, and ugly to look at. There was nothing admirable, romantic, or even desirable about him. Deep in her heart, Rowie knew all this, yet she fiercely drove the knowledge back before the force of her love and pity for and understanding of him. She deliberately shut her eyes to all that was weak or foolish, because in her mind, Recognition of it would be disloyalty to her love for him. Yeah, so we get a, a real taste of kind of the wording, what's going on there. I actually found it rather poetic and it's, it's some deep insights into kind of the self-delusions of love, especially that can come from, from young teenagers. And so the book really does focus on their trials, their tribulations. With It's moments of joy, so overall it's not abject, objectively sad the entire time, but it is a book where you kind of read it and you're just like, oh, that's a bit of a bummer, you know. Your uh, your, your heartstrings do get plucked because you, you do feel for these characters because they, they're not particularly bad people, uh, which gets us, I suppose, onto some of the questions, the themes, what actually is derived from this book. Well, from that earlier quote we just had then, we, we really see, you know, Tommy, who was her first boyfriend, her first love, um, he doesn't love her and Rowie in return doesn't love him. They, they both have ulterior motives. You know, he just kind of wants to have an experience which he can recount to his mates and she just enjoys the feeling of being in love. She loves being in love. And it raises some questions of like, you know, why, why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we try and protect or forgive those who are not worthy of it, who are, you know, trying to pretend this person's like this and, and things like this? In this case, in this particular one, you know, young love, young relationships, they're just so precarious and trying to figure out other people. It's the first time you're unsure. There's expectations when we see like uh, he's kind of pressuring her for sex and she's like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to. And then he's like, yeah, really kind of pressing her, but also he's too afraid to to be a man about it and, and like get what he wants. And it's it's very... You know, it's he wants sex. She wants a fairy tale. Fairy tale, and they're both relatively disappointed with the the final outcome, and and they part the ways, but uh, not not before this causes uh, even more issues down the line. And so we've got this real warped love coming from these two characters, and you're like, okay, well, 
you know, maybe you can kind of forgive it. They're, they're both really young. They don't really know what's going on. It's their first time. But there's, <laughs> there's so many instances of where it's just like, man, what is going on here? So, for example, Mama, so Rowie is is disappointed in him because he's Jewish and she's Catholic and uh, he doesn't believe in Christmas. So, he doesn't give her a gift or or he ends up giving her a gift, but it's like a wash basin and soap. Very, very disappointing. So she, so she spends all this money to buy this pretty fancy jewelry, which she then presents to her family as if he was the one who gave it to her and lies about it. And the lie is discovered by her mom. And then her mom's kind of proud of her for lying and trying to cover up by how much, you know, how uncaring and useless he is really. And so you see like, okay, well, that's, that's a little bit weird. You know, it's, it's nice, but it's a twisted type of caring and love from both of them from Rowie trying to uh and and the reason Rowie was trying to do this was because she didn't want her family to think bad about him so it's it's just like this weird stuff um at the end she lies again to her, her true love to kind of cover up and it's for for the greater good uh i've done some book reviews of this before of, of books where it's like it's for the greater good and it never really ends up working out well i've, I've uh, usually the lie and the deception just makes things worse rather than better. And this just continues out with other characters as well. Particularly, we see this with Mama and her, her husband, Huey, the, the father of, of Roy. And he's basically like an alcoholic. His abuse is off the charts. He's a good dad when he's not drunk, but he's drunk a lot of the time and will, you know, hit them around and things like this, yell at them. There's a lot of yell- yelling and shouting in, th- in this relationship in this book. And her self-deception, Mama has always been like, oh, you know, Huey, he's, he's so close to being perfect. Like, she has these moments where it's just like everything's good and, and you know, he, he shows some caring, but it's got to be 10% of the time. And then the other 90%, he's just like a gruff dude who's either neutral or being an asshole. And, and uh, the self-deception just of all these characters is, is rather, rather strange. And just re- idyllic love reminds me of uh, utopias. It's just <laughs> like, if you're searching for a utopia, it's not going to end out well. It's uh, nice intentions, but deception comes at, uh, uh, deception of reality comes at your peril, which I think leads us into the next theme, which is really poverty. And a lot of times you, you don't really get a choice with this. And so there was this, uh, particular section I thought on page 218, which was interesting. So I'm going to jump here and uh, Cole can explain this for us. You're beautiful, Rowie. I'm not. I look like an old woman when I'm tired. You won't always be tired. We'll get out of this. Have a lovely house and a garden. Someday. They both knew that would never come. Responsibilities anchored them, for Charlie's earning capacity was very limited. And day by day, their bonds to the cheap and dirty portion of the city were made stronger. Perhaps they would struggle against it in their dreams, but no more than that. There were so many other things to consider, too. Their shyness and awkwardness with the people of the outside world, just as though they were inhabitants of an island lapped by the roaring traffic seas of the great city. Their consciousness of poor, halting speech and inability to cope with any social standards. Their tendency to shrink into and shelter within the warm, corrosive, familiar things and places. They would grow old and die in Surrey Hills, as people have been doing for five generations. Yeah, so, oh, geez, just, just a bit of brutal reality there of 
you you try and do things you you try and escape your situation but ah you're not really going to escape it you know and you know how does this show up in the book you know the knowledge that poverty runs is deep and is inescapable but how does this appear in the book well i mean every second interaction between characters is shouting and yelling they their ability to communicate is so so poor and so every interaction that they have whether it be a minuscule thing about what's for dinner or a chore or job or something that needs to be done it turns into a shouting match and it's just you you can just imagine like tensions are rising so therefore their anxiety is going to be off the roof uh and you know they 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 have a certain risk tolerance for for danger so for example roe walks home one one night and gets severely beaten and almost dies basically uh an inability to look beyond their environment when they go to certain locations such as Delore has a, a a quiz and she she wins some money from it and it's got a big presentation on a stage and things like this and the, the whole family's going there and they're just you know they stick out because they're so uncouth they stick out because they don't have just the basic knowledge of you know this is how you behave and look in public and it really gets to the question you know are these the results of poverty or characteristics that lead to it i.e is this nature or nurture were they born like you know is it internal things within them that are then making them poor poor decision making things like this or is it their environment such that they're trapped in surrey hills and they just do not have an opportunity to get out of it no even if they try and be smart like delore did even if they try and find a better man and a good person and things like this they're the their economic situation is just like no you're gonna have to stay here and to survive you have to live in this crappy house and to live in this crappy house you have to pay this exorbitant rent and to pay this exorbitant rent you have to work 19 hours or like you know 13 hours a day at the factory to be able to provide that sort of thing and uh you know for me personally i i, I look more on the side of of empathy of, of kind of pity for these characters mostly i think it's circumstance and reinforced behaviors from birth so you know crappy eating leads to crappy choices and so we see this even with the the puffing billy which is basically their their way to cook food and mama is has to stoke it with coal and so they just get coal on all their food which is just like you know that's not going to lead to a healthy life for example um you see in some characters that they they, they don't necessarily need to be poor. So Rowie, for example, when she finds this kind of dream man of hers, she ends up interacting with him in a completely different way than she does with her family. So she becomes more of her normal character or her internal, which is a lot more soft-spoken, a lot more refined, and she doesn't shout or yell at him and is kind of very submissive serving of him. And it's it's really interesting just being like, okay, I would say what I got from this is they're not bad people. Um, and in fact, there's certain instances where they, you would expect them to show some racism or something like this, for example, against Charlie because he's got Aboriginal blood in him. And there's a couple of you know words in this book re- referring to Asian people as chinks, to uh, black people as like niggly, things like this. And But, but you see like the characters, they, they don't necessarily... They're not necessarily bad people, even though they they sometimes do some bad things. It, it's it's weird. It's hard to explain because you're like, well, doesn't that therefore mean that they're bad? But I, I would just say when it comes to kind of like 
religion and racism and even how they behave in their internal like core they don't they're not that bad people they, they do seem to have some deep ethics that being said they do a lot of bad things and you know shouting abuse yelling uh poor decision making all of this ties up into it and so you're like okay well it's got there's got to be a bit of responsibility somewhere you know so it's uh overall you kind of look at it and you're just like damn that's a little bit sad <laughs> it's not it's not uh, particularly nice in, in that aspect Let's jump on to the author, a couple of extra details, things like this. So Ruth Park, uh, she was actually a New Zealand born, but came to Australia uh, later in life. So we are absolutely claiming her as our own. So therefore, this is an Aussie classic book and it's centered on Australia. So it makes sense. Uh, she grew up in poverty herself. So I think a lot of the right that's reflected in the writing because it, it does come across as, as reality. It's, it's pretty gritty and knew the sting of it. Like a lot of books from this time, this had an origin in a newspaper, hence the 21 chapters I was referring to at the, the start. Normally, you can feel the serialization. You go and you're like, okay, yeah, that's a distinct stopping point into a distinct starting point. But with this one, because there was no particular plot driving it forward, it was just a day in the life. The characters would do this thing and then, you know, it's uh, summer next and they're talking about the heat and how they... Uh, wearing the wrong clothes and the old dirty clothes and then you know what's going on in her life it doesn't have that feel of a serialization of okay he wrote this in one separate chunk optimized for this portion of a newspaper that was getting uh, read out so it's got a you know it, it was like each bit had to have a a cliffhanger that sort of thing this didn't have that because because it had no plot she could just kind of write it and finish it and then write again and, and just pick off where the characters would have been a couple of months later. So it's, it's really interesting in that respect. It's probably the first book I've come across where it was serialized, but it doesn't, you, I couldn't really tell. It was only afterwards where I, I did some, doing some research and my, oh, interesting. That's, um, that's something I, I, I didn't particularly know. During the time when it was published, it was apparently uh, rather controversial and scandalous. You know, there's talk, talk in there of, uh, abortions there's talk in there of um you know uh, sex outside of marriage of you know drunken behaviors of um inter uh, interracial relationships things like this so it's it's very much like ooh, scandalous and the people who actually published it which i believe is angus and robertson didn't want to but because she ruth park won this contest of part of the newspaper and had it published they, they um, in the newspaper, they had to publish it as a book. So pretty interesting. I have no idea why it's called The Harp in the South. There's nothing in this book about harps. It's in New South Wales. So I guess that's the South portion. And maybe you could say Rowie is a, is a harp. She's a beautiful, uh, delicate instrument, something like that. I don't know. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be scrambling to, to try and figure that out. So um, just an interesting little side note there. Uh, what I would just say is like the extra thing that I got from this, it really does a great job of surfacing an issue and then I guess getting a bit deeper into it, but it brings up the issue in an interesting way. And typically it's like a, an Australian classic. So, uh, uh, something that's really related to Australia. So as you're reading this, you, you're going to get a good sense of what Australia at least was like. And then I think there's some things in particular, which haven't really changed. So once again, Cole's going to give us a, a little explanation here from uh, page 61. He's already getting drunk. It is easy to get drunk in Australia. Things have been so arranged that a man can buy a bottle of musket for four and six and get madder on it than a cow in a patch of poison weed. For it did not come from any vineyard. 
No deep and autumnal southern sun ripened its grapes. No pungent vat housed it before it was bottled. It was born of an oil well in Texas, seasoned with wine dregs, colored with raspberry syrup or beetroot juice, and even occasionally pepped up with a tan boot polish. It was easy to become a god on it, or a maniac. There are intelligent drinkers and stupid drinkers. Huey was one of the first. His intelligence told him that he was weak and without any importance in the world, he both feared and loved, and so he drank to drown it. Inarticulate, a man who had many thoughts that were no more than a nebulous, cloudy mingling of impressions, half-memories, and emotions, Huey would continually be haunted by the knowledge that he could not express. When he was half-drunk, he was possessed with an incalculable sorrow for all the piteous strivings and battlings of humanity. For what? Something better than what it had? But what it was, Huey did not know. Yeah, so what to take from this? One, we still have Goon, which is boxed wine here in Australia. It's this feral, it's like the cheap off, the cheapest off <laughs> dregs of wine you can imagine and put into box in box type form. And um, that's that's like the, it's a really good way to get drunk and very cheap as well. So, you know, some things haven't changed <laughs> from the 1930s. Uh, a lot of other things you'll get from this book are just Aussie stuff of words, of, of names, even things like Moira, Johnny, Delore. They're, they're very old-fashioned Australian names. And it's just really cool. You know, he brings up this kind of funny concept. It's like, oh, you know, getting drunk in Australia, how it's, it's got tan boot polish and stuff in it. And then, and then it's like, yeah, you know what? But there's a reason for this. And, um, you know, why does, why does Huey drink? Well, some, there's two types of people and he's, he's the first. And this continues throughout the book. It, it really shows this lonely character in a sense where it's initially easy to put him off as, you know, the abusive alcoholic father. Uh, but then when you kind of start to realize why he drinks, you know, he drinks to, uh, reduce this anxiety he feels about his poverty because he's ashamed of it he he drinks to uh, be able to just you know forget of the that like straight up hard days of of his working and uh and it's just this compulsion you know as soon as he gets money he wants to do good he wants to uh use this money to buy things for for his family and things like this but as soon as he gets like a little bit it just it slips through his hands and once again, you know, it's his choice. He's making these decisions. But when you're looking at alcoholics and people who are addicted to substances, you know, they, I think you do have to have some pity for them and, and just go like, you know, they're not in their right mind. And even when, you know, he has good intentions, but this consuming aspect of him just makes him go and, and um, do things that all like all the way is just like, it's, it's just a bit sad, <laughs> to be honest. So let's just go into my summary similar book maybe some recommendations uh it's, it's just a really solid read although sad it didn't leave me super depressed like some other books have in the past uh probably because the ending was happy yeah relatively <laughs> and no matter i i think due to this kind of like day in the life and it would just roll on from one scene to the next even when they had really bad passages even when you know grandma died or when uh, Rowie has like this, you know, a beating slash abortion slash, you know, traumatic event happen to her. There, there's always a, a a bit of a glimmer of hope, or there's always it, it it just transforms, and it's not like it just ends on a 
on a brutal cliffhanger of, you know, he's trapped in the cell with no hope or anything. It's like, no, it just continues on. And so uh, it didn't, although not happy, it's it's not sad. It doesn't linger in the sadness. It, it kind of goes on. So, in fact, even the worst doldrums would, would have some positives shortly afterwards. I think there's great insight into a different type of life. I hope a life I'll never have to experience. I hope that, you know, most people unfortunately will experience the the poverty and the decision making that that results from that but um at least here in australia most people aren't in that position anymore but there's there's still some who are and it is um it's it's very sad it's very sad in that respect um poverty is just brutal just brutal makes you you know the pain the suffering and it makes there's a there's a cyclical nature to it which is uh, very hard to break out of, and um, yeah, it does make you sad. So overall, I'm going to give The Harp in the South by Ruth Park a very solid 7 out of 10. Definitely would would uh, recommend checking out if you want some Australian history. Um, if, you're, if you're feeling a bit sad, maybe don't read it, maybe leave it for another time. In terms of similar books, I've done a book review of uh, My Brother Jack by George Johnston. I think that gives a relatively similar similar experience in some ways. I think that book was uh, in Melbourne, if I recall co- correctly, it was dealing with some themes of war, but there was a lot of poverty and uh, of characters kind of living in these shit places and then having to go to work and and trying to find a little bit of love, trying to find some connection with other people. It was just a very different time compared to now when we've got our phones and digital connections and, and all these sorts of things. So very different in, in that respect. Uh, and funnily enough, my brother Jack, when I was reading it, I had in this vision of my mind, it was very much a um, kind of like a black and white type scenario. It, it seemed, um, it, it, it very much seemed like it was just, uh, uh, yeah, this, this kind of black and white, whereas here this was a more sepia um, version. So yeah, in- interesting in that respect. Um, what I would just say is, yeah, check out that, probably also due to the non judgmental nature of the characters there's nothing that can really really be um, done with that or changed with that um i'm going to jump onto my boostergram lounge here as well i believe there might be some audio issues with the video so uh i might have to re-upload this later splice them in together or something um uh, it was working fine at the start but things change apparently with <laughs> with all of these things so uh the boostergram lounge is a section where i, I thank people for contributing to the podcast I saw Sam Sethi last week from Podfans was uh, contributing in. Very much thankful for the a lot of streaming. I sent a test boost out to Cole. I believe he sent one in as well just to test out the uh, uh, the splits because I put him in as a ten percent split. So every time that uh, you send a message through to the, this podcast to the, to this episode, I should say ten um, percent of that will go to Cole, which is uh, very cool, and I very much thank Cole for for all of he's done. Uh, you see on your screen here now as well if you want to contribute um there's actually a and and know what a satoshi is so this is a value for value podcast i just ask that you uh if you've gotten some value from this you you contribute that back as many different ways of doing this but and if you go to mermortalspodcast.com slash support you'll see how you can send in a boostergram within a podcasting app or via via a a desktop link or something like that and that is a way of um being able to contribute something back to the show monetarily form and I'll, I'll like to read those out i do want to give a shout out to a character who was popping up in our, our comments recently as well it was pretty funny because he left geez how many comments it, was, it must have been like 
10 plus on various different uh, book reviews. It was Psyche Hacker 6914. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was really cool uh, just having someone interacting in the comments. I really do love that. This is the YouTube comments I should um, talk about in particular. And yeah, that's that's really cool. I do appreciate uh, people sending messages in and um, and adding something so that there is a, a bit of discussion going on down the bottom there. So very much thank you, my friend. And I, if I miss any of them, you know, that it's, I, I try my best to get to all of them, but sometimes YouTube does weird things. And um, yeah, I, uh, it, that's just the way it goes. So I'm going to leave it up here and just say this is a value for value podcast. So very much thank you for um, uh, everyone who's contributed in. Time, talent and treasure. Share this show with someone who you think will benefit from it. If you have a recommendation, a talent of things you think I'll enjoy, please uh, list that out to me. Send uh, send that in via the social, uh, any of the social links or reach out directly with a boostgram or things like this. And then finally, treasure, you know, send it a boost. There's also a PayPal. So if you click on the PayPal link, you can uh, do send some money in whatever, however much value you get from this. And uh, that all goes towards to, you know, the hosting, contributing and, you know, my time and effort and things like this. So. We're going to leave it there for today. I thank you every, everyone very much for um, tuning in, joining in. If there's any audio issues or video issues, I'll look at still a work in progress, still trying to get those good. And um, yeah, I'll leave it there for today. Next book coming up will be The Three Body Problem by I think his name is Shijin Liu. I'm, I, I'll need to research how to pronounce that. But uh, a little bit of sci-fi coming up for you. So we're going to leave it there for today. Thank you, everyone. Ciao for now. Kyron, out.